Um, each week that we gather together, part of our, our worship, part of our uh, seeking to honor the Lord and be obedient to His Word is, is a confession of sins. And uh, typically, uh, what I do, uh, going to give you a little peek into how the sausage is made here. Uh, typically, what I do is I choose a, a passage, usually late in the week, um, much to probably Emily's chagrin, and, uh, and then do, we do a little exposition on that passage. Uh, try to choose passages and try to uh, go places in the scriptures that, that uh, encourage us uh, to confess, that, that remind us of why we should do it or, or um, why we should strive uh, in holiness. And um, sometimes the most appropriate thing to do, I think, as opposed to having a short exposition, is simply just to let the scriptures speak, uh, for I can say nothing better than the Bible has already said itself. So this morning, as a, as a means of calling us to confession, what I wanted to do, and obviously in light of, of Advent, is just uh, read for us um, Isaiah 53, and let these words sit on us and over us and in us as we prepare to come before the Lord and to confess our sins. So hear the word of the Lord. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. May he be glorified, and may we, his people, be encouraged by the truth of his word. So this morning, if you are able, would you please kneel with me as we confess our sins? I've probably said this before, but when I was in uh, Bible college where I met my beautiful wife, or maybe to put it more appropriately, she met me, um, I uh, would take preaching class, and uh, Dr. Belcher was the professor, and he was a, a gruff old man uh, by the time I met him, a very interesting eccentric old man, but a wonderful man, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful man. And as we'd preach, 
we had time limits, 30 minutes was how long we were allowed to preach. And uh, he would sit there and uh, clear his throat throughout the whole entire sermon rather loudly. But then when he got close to time, he would hold up five fingers or four fingers, three fingers. I say that because this clock has been at 6.05 for the past hour and a half. And if I keep looking at that, Lord knows how long we're going to be here. So somebody, if you want to play the part of Dr. Belcher this morning, you may do so. And uh, kind of discreetly, there we go. Thank you, Tyler. <laughs> Tyler's already stepping up. It's interesting that I already put up five. I've got five more minutes, kind of wrap this thing up. But if you discreetly want to put your hand up, kind of like that, just let me know as we're getting close to time. Otherwise, we're just going to see how far we can take this. Uh, we're going to be in Psalm 42 this morning, so I want to encourage you, ask you to turn your Bible there. Um, I hesitate to say flick there on your device. I know we have phones and iPads in now, uh, nowadays, but I, I, I'm a big fan of tangible uh, pages, so um, turn there in your Bible. And if you are on a device, don't feel like it's a, a lesser thing when, in fact, it really is. Um, but we're going to look at Psalm 42 this morning together. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm, this is bittersweet for me in some respects. I was telling Jeff this morning, I realized like, I'm, I'm preaching this week. And I'm, I'm preaching next week, and then I don't preach again uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, six weeks ahead, I'm, I'm, I'm not on the, the uh, calendar, so I've really got to milk these next two Sundays for all I can. Uh, so maybe don't put your hand up. Let's just, let's just keep going. But uh, my plan over the next two Sundays, because we're in Advent, my, my plan uh, over the next two Sundays, uh, this Sunday and next, is, is really just to kind of consider this season of Advent, this season of expectation, longing, uh, um, uh, looking to Christ, and, and really kind of draw out uh, two really practical um, points of application for us as we consider the uh, season of Advent. Uh, the first would be this week is just the hope that Advent presents and, and what that hope means for us and how it translates into our existence. And the second would be um, the, the fact that uh, in this time of Advent, this isn't a time for us to be idle, but this is a time for us to be very busy, uh, to be busy with the work that the Lord has given us to do. And so this morning we'll look at Psalm 42 to kind of establish that, that first point. So if you look there with me, let's read this psalm together. It says, To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts of song and praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is within me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. May he be glorified at the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning thankful for this opportunity to be in your word, asking God that you give wisdom, that you would give insight, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our minds and our ears to hear, to see, to understand, and to walk in obedience to your word. Father, we do pray that you be glorified in the preaching and the teaching of your word and that we, uh, your people, would be edified and built up. 
Father, guard my mouth uh, so that I might say only that which is edifying for us and so that in all things you would be glorified, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, we know uh, that this is Advent. Uh, and it's a, a time on the church calendar that is a, a time of kind of focused uh, expectation and anticipation. Uh, it's a time where our attention uh, is uniquely turned, uh, not that it isn't turned this way every week and every day, but it's uniquely turned as a, ch- as a church uh, to the coming of Christ and in considering the coming of Christ, kind of seeking to experience uh, the joy, the longing, the hope, and the expectation of his coming. Uh, And because of that, Advent is also a time uh, that's kind of split into different directions, right? Uh, During the time of Advent, we certainly focus on uh, the first coming of Christ. Uh, We consider um, what it meant for Christ to come as a baby born uh, in Bethlehem, uh, the joy and the fulfillment that his birth brought and and that it meant as uh, Christ came, uh, God with us, God in human flesh, Emmanuel there. Uh, and so we consider uh, the, the first coming of Christ, the hope, the joy, the fulfillment, and the expectation there. And, and as we do that, as we consider that, right, our, our minds are driven uh, forward to consider Christ's second coming as well. To so turn our eyes to the fact that our Lord is going to return and he will bring a completed joy. He will bring a full and final fulfillment. He will set all that is wrong right. And, and what that means for us is that, that really as we as we think of Advent, as we celebrate Advent, we, we recognize that, that we're, we're living kind of in this time in between, right? Uh, we're living in this time in between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And, and Advent reminds us of that. It reminds us that we have something that we're looking back on and we have something that we are definitely looking forward to. Uh, living in this time in between uh, also reminds us that we are living uh, in a time that still is under the curse of sin. We live in a a Genesis chapter 3 world right now, Uh, a world that is full of struggles and difficulties and hardships, Uh, a world that is is marked by sin and the curse of sin. And so this morning, what I want us to do in turning our attention to consider the coming of Christ in in this Advent season is to consider the hope that that presents for us, right? A hope that I believe enables us, encourages us, and even emboldens us Uh, to live in the midst of this time in between, to live in the midst of this time of hardship, difficulty, and struggle marked by the continual presence of sin. And those difficulties and those hardships and those struggles uh, are manifested in a multitude of ways in our lives, and we know that all too well. And so I want to look at Psalm 42 and try to flesh this out for us. Now, as we look at Psalm 42, the first thing you might be thinking, possibly, is what does Psalm 42 have to do with Advent? I realized driving in uh, this morning that I, I've been trying to, uh, maybe subconsciously, I don't know, trying to pick uh, passages for Advent that, that maybe aren't necessarily on everybody's radar for Advent. I remember uh, last year, one of the sermons I preached was from Genesis 38 for Advent, not necessarily one that you automatically flock to. Right? If you remember Genesis 38, Kyle preached on it a couple weeks ago. That's in Judah and Tamar and the sin and comes out of that situation. And so maybe Psalm 42 doesn't necessarily immediately jump off the page as a, as a section or a passage that you would look at for Advent. But I think as we look at it, what we, what we see as we look at uh, the psalmist's struggle here in Psalm 42 is I think we find that uh, the, the emotion, the expectation, the struggle, the longing, the hope that's, that's present all in this psalm is, 
is very reflective of and finds a lot of connection to uh, the hope, the struggle, the expectation, the longing that we have and, and the hope and the expectation and longing that we uniquely experience and consider during the time of Advent. As we look at Psalm 42, Psalm 42 uh, begins with an expression of deep desire, right? Uh, the psalmist begins with this kind of evocative image, uh, this, this uh, picture of a deer that is panting for flowing streams of water, right? We get this, this picture in our mind of, of a, a deer that is thirsting for water. I, I kind of, as I was thinking about it, thinking about a deer in the desert that's just kind of like wandering around looking for water. And then when that water is found, right, the, the satisfaction and, and I don't know if deer, I almost said deers. I don't know if deer uh, experience joy, but the satisfaction that the, the stream of water would give to a thirsting deer. Five minutes. All right. I shouldn't have, we got to stop real quick. I shouldn't have said that, Jeff. That's your one freebie. No more of the, the five minute hand. All right. Uh, the satisfaction that that would provide for the deer, right? The psalmist is connecting that to his own longing. He's not thirsting for water. He's not looking like a deer is looking for streams of water. He is thirsting for the Lord. And he expresses it in this deep way. As a, as a deer pants for flowing streams of water, so my soul uh, pants for you, Lord. So my soul longs for you. My soul thirsts for the living God. This idea of thirsting for God and God's satisfying thirst obviously is picked up in the New Testament as Christ declares himself to, to be the, uh, the streams of living water that he will produce in people. And so there's a satisfaction that the psalmist is looking for, a satisfaction that can only come as he is in the presence of the Lord. Right? He longs to appear before the Lord. He longs to worship the Lord. He longs to even see the face of the Lord. When it says in verse 2, when shall I come and appear before God, a way we can understand that is he longs to see the very face of God. And so this deep and longing desire is clearly made known in verses 1 and 2, and it kind of reaches uh, this emotional apex really in the beginning of verse 3, where he says, my tears have been my food day and night. Right, so great is this desire that the psalmist is expressing and the fact that it remains yet unfulfilled is a source of immense pain and anguish in the life of the psalmist. He cries out, the only thing I've been eating is my very own tears. And what we see as we read through the psalm is that this longing of the psalmist is exacerbated and even frustrated by both distance and adversaries. Right? His separation from the city of God, his separation uh, from the temple, his separation from the presence of God is, is making his longing uh, all, all the more tangible, all the more real. He longs to be with God because he is separated from God. And then on top of this is this taunt or this ridicule that comes from his adversaries who question him with the question of where is your God? We notice that twice. <coughs> Excuse me. It comes up... <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, it comes up uh, in verse 3. It says, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? And then we see it again in verse 10. As with the deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? And so this, this sense of separation and this sense of abandonment is, is, is just kind of emphasized and it's and enhanced by the taunt of these adversaries to the extent that the psalmist himself begins to struggle with this. He begins to struggle with the separation he feels from God. He begins to, to wonder why God has abandoned him. 
If we read through the Psalms, you know that this is a rather common theme in the Psalms, this sense of abandonment, this sense of separation. One of the most famous Psalms being Psalm 22, a messianic Psalm that Jesus quotes uh, on the cross. So in verse 9, the psalmist cries out, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And then again, as we saw in verse 10, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And so as we look at the psalmist here in Psalm 42, we see a psalm, uh, a man who is, is longing for the presence of God, who desires to be with the Lord, longs to worship God, is, 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 is unsatisfied until he is in God's presence. And that, and that lack of satisfaction or, or that, that, that anguish in him is amplified by his distance from the Lord and by these taunts from his enemies. And as we look at this, I think we can find several points of connection to us. As we read the very first verse of Psalm 42, I don't think it's out of place to say that, that our desire for the Lord should, should match or even exceed that of the psalmist. Right? He says, as a deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you. I remember reading this a long time ago when I was younger, and one of the questions I asked myself was, like, can I echo that? Can, can I say that? Are those words that can honestly come out of my mouth? That as a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs for the Lord. So my soul thirsts after the Lord. The truth is, is that, that our desire for God should, should, should exceed even his own because we stand by God's grace on this side of the cross. We know better than the psalmist did the true salvation of God accomplished through his son, Jesus Christ, who came and went to the cross to redeem us and to save us. And so as we see the passion of the psalmist, as we see the longing of the psalmist, the desire of the psalmist, we're forced to reckon with ourselves and say, do we desire God in that way? Do we long for God in that way? Are we seeking satisfaction and that satisfaction can only be found in the very presence of God? Or do we seek for satisfaction and look for satisfaction in lesser things? Now the truth is that that's, that's a continual struggle in all of us, is it not? Now, there's always things vying for our attention and vying for our affections. There's always things saying, hey, listen, if you take me, you really will be satisfied. This is a time of year when, when, when I don't know if you guys watch TV anymore. Does anybody watch TV? Uh, when, when adverts come on the television. I remember being a little kid around Christmas time, and you would see these ads come on TV, and it's all the toys in the world, right? It's like, for me, it was G.I. Joe and Transformers and He-Man. And those commercials would come on TV, and as a little kid, you're sitting there watching it, and what are you being told? The only way you're going to be happy the only way you're going to be satisfied, the only way this Christmas is going to mean anything is if you have this, which for me was personified in the G.I. Joe aircraft carrier, which to this day I have yet to receive. And I still, I still make my father, I, I remind him of that daily. To the extent that, this is an aside and I shouldn't say it, but to the extent that he went on eBay one time trying to find me one, lo and behold, those suckers are like $3,000 now. So dad really missed the boat back in the day, didn't he? But the truth is there's always things vying for our attention and crying out and saying, listen, I will satisfy you. I will satisfy you. I will provide for you. But the truth is satisfaction can only be found in the Lord. The psalmist declares in another place, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And the question is, do we believe that? Like, do we believe that at God's right hand is all the pleasures we could ever want, ever, ever need, or ever desire? And so the psalmist is speaking to us as well, saying, listen, your desire, you who know Christ, you who are in Christ Jesus, your desire for the Lord should be even greater than my desire for the Lord. But it's not just, it's not just the, the desire <coughs> that we, we see, but it's the longing as well for the Lord, this longing for the Lord. Again, Advent is this time of eager expectation and anticipation. 
And really it's during Advent that, that we focus our attention on the coming of the Lord, on his second coming. And in a sense, we are expressing our deep desire to be with the Lord, right? And, and Advent, as we turn our attention uh, towards the, the, the second coming of Christ, we are verbalizing much like the psalmist, uh, how, how long till I can be with you? Or, or better yet, how long till you will come and be with me? And so in Advent, we also understand this, this, this longing and this desire that's present within the psalmist. So we, much like him, are crying out, when will my God come and make all things right? And so we see this desire, we see this longing, not only in the psalmist, but we see it, I think, in ourselves, or we should see it in ourselves as well. And we also, much like the psalmist, often see that our desire and our longing is frustrated both by distance and by adversaries. Right, again, we celebrate Advent or we, uh, we celebrate this time of season because Christ has not returned yet. That's a spoiler alert for you. Um, Christ hasn't come back yet. I was in a church down in uh, North Carolina. I was a, a really just like, I don't want to say brand new believer, but I was coming out of just rebellion. The Lord's calling me back to himself. I'm in this Bible study and I come to find out that this, this dad in the Bible study believes that the second coming has already happened. And I remember looking around going, then what the heck am I doing here? Like, I'm sorely confused. Like, if, if the second coming's happened, why are we here? I didn't think this is how that thought that worked out, right? But spoiler, Christ hasn't come back yet. And so there, there's still this distance between us and Christ's return. And there are also still adversaries that taunt us. I think it's, I think it's really interesting that the taunt throughout the centuries is always the same, right? In Psalm 42, what is the taunt? Where is your God? You who long for him, you who desire him, you who want to be with him, where, where is he? Well, well, what does Peter say in, in, in 2 Peter that was read this morning by Jeff? He says, scoffers will come with scoffing. That's usually what they come with too, by the way. It, we, we should be shocked if a scoffer shows up without scoffing. But scoffers usually come with scoffing. And what do the scoffers come scoffing? What do they say? Where is this promise of his coming? Where is it? Because from the beginning, things are going on as they always have. Essentially, what are the scoffers saying? The scoffers are saying, where is your God? You who gather and you who worship and you who pray and you who praise him and you who long for this Christ that you speak so wonderfully of, where is he? Because I can't see him. I can't touch him. I can't feel him. And so the taunt from the adversaries of God has always been the same. Where is this God that you speak of? Where is he? And so as we look at Psalm 42, what's interesting, I think, is that we don't see this, this huge distance between us and this, this psalmist. I think we see that, that his situation very much mirrors our situation. We are a people who long for the Lord. Do we not? We gather every week praising his name, glorifying his name, and we long for our Lord to return. We long for Christ to return because in returning, Christ will set all things right. It was, it was read from Peter this morning. He, he comes to bring a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. I mean, we wake up every day in the presence of sin. We wake up every day in a world tainted by sin, under the oppression of sin, bound under the curse of sin, and it becomes oppressive, does it not? Such that we long for and we desire a place where righteousness dwells. So we understand this, this cry of the psalmist, how I long to be before the Lord, how I long to be with the Lord, how I long the Lord to be with us and to establish righteousness. And, and so we understand his longing. We understand the, the, this sense of separation. And, and we understand also living out this life in the midst of hardships and struggles and adversaries that are set against us. And so our, our situation, I think, is, is not quite that different at all. I think they're, they're extremely similar. And I say that because I believe 
could be wrong here, but I believe that if our, our situations are, are similar in that way, then the hope that comforts the psalmist in the midst of this, right, the hope that comes to him in the midst of his anguish and his desire and his longing, his expectation, adversaries oppressing him, the hope that comforts him um, will be much like or, or, or is, is reflective of the hope that will comfort us as well. Or maybe to say it another way, in looking at the hope that comforts the psalmist, we can see hope that will comfort us as well. Hope that will comfort us as well. So in Psalm 42, what is the hope of the psalmist? Well, he, he speaks it in verse 5 and in verse 11. Look at verse 5. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And if we go to verse 11, we see it again. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And if you're astute, you will notice that verse, uh, chapter 43, verse 5 ends in the same way. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. In the midst of his hardships, in the midst of his difficulties, in the midst of his anguish, in the midst of his longing, the psalmist asks himself a question. He begins to question himself, and he questions his despair. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And in the midst of his despair, faith comes and offers the answer. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you despairing within me? And faith responds, hope in God. For you will again worship him, and you will again praise him. The hope that is set before the psalmist is God and his faithfulness to his promises. The hope that is set before the, before the psalmist is the fact that God is his Savior and God will save his people. As one author puts it, hope, in essence, is waiting for God to act. So in the midst of his despair, in the midst of his longing, in the midst of these unfulfilled desires to be in the presence of the God, in the presence of God, and, and under a, a attack and, and being assailed by enemies who, who insult him and taunt him, what is the response or what is the hope that his heart gives? It's hope in the Lord. Wait on God to act, for he is faithful to do so. He will save his people. He will deliver his people. God is faithful to his promises. And so this gives the psalmist all the assurance that is necessary to face the difficulties of his situation and to know in the midst of it that there will be resolution. Look what he says again. For I shall again praise him. I shall again praise him. I shall again praise him. This is not a word of uncertainty. This is a word of assurance that faith declares in his heart. You shall again praise the Lord. Because God is faithful. God will act. God will save. God will deliver. God will keep his word. So again, as we consider the hope that the psalmist experiences here, we see how this hope begins to apply to us. Right? Advent is a clear reminder that there is a sure and certain hope that is set before us. There is the promise of Christ's return, and with that return, a new heaven and a new earth. I was talking to Annie about this, and, and this isn't necessarily empirical. So there might be somebody who comes up to me after this sermon and challenges me and says, you're, you're ridiculous, you don't know what you're talking about. 
But oftentimes we comfort ourselves with the fact that when we die, we will go somewhere, right? Like uh, we, 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 maybe I'm off base here, but like we'll think about, all right, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven or I'm going to be with the Lord, right? That, that, that is a, a way that we comfort ourselves. I, I find it interesting that I don't think that's the primary way that the scriptures seek to comfort us. Right? That's not to say that when we die, we don't go to be with the Lord. But I think the primary way that we often see the scriptures comforting us is with the promise, not of our death and where that death will take us, but the promise of Christ's return. Right? As, we, as we read through the New Testament, I think what we often see is the hope that's given to us, the hope that's meant to assure us, the hope that's meant to establish us and keep us is not that when you die, you will go somewhere, but that Christ is coming back. And I, and I, think, this is, that's, that's, I think that's an important shift in our mind, is that, that our, our assurance is set on the promise of Christ to return. And I think the early church, if you read through the New Testament, the early church lived every day of their life under this realization that Christ is returning, that Christ is coming back. They got up each and every day. They worshiped, they glorified, they honored, they did work because Christ is coming back. Right? We already saw it read from first or second Peter this morning, right? <clears throat> second Peter chapter three, verse 13. But according to his promise, we are awaiting a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Right? Peter, as he's speaking to the church, encouraging the church, doesn't say, hey, listen, guys, when it's all said and done and when you die, you're going to go to this place. What does he say? He says, no, we're waiting for something to come to us. Christ is going to come and rescue us. He's going to come finish what he started. And so we see this as we work throughout the scriptures. We see it from Christ, his own mouth. In the gospel of John, Christ promises to return for his people. So in John, we read this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I, I love the John. John is, is he's, I don't know what the appropriate word is. The gospel and his letters, they're just more mushy than other stuff. They're, they're more uh, uh, feely, tangible, uh, emotive, I think. Uh, and, and so Christ is, is speaking these words of comfort to his people. He's speaking words of comfort to us. And he's saying, I'm going and I'm preparing a place for you. And if I, I, I wouldn't tell you this, but I'm telling you this. Why? Because I'm coming back to get you. I'm coming back to get you, to take you, to be where I am. Right? And then John picks up on this in his letter in 1 John when he writes to encourage this church that's struggling and, and, and under the difficulty of schism and separation. So that in 1 John chapter 3, he says this to the church. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So John writing to encourage the church, and how does he encourage the church? He encourages the church with the reality that Christ is coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to finish the work in us, right? This is what Paul calls the redemption of our bodies. This realization that, that we have our eyes set on something that's fixed on a future reality, which is the return of Christ. And when Christ returns, he's going to set all things right. And he's going to finish and bring to final and full fulfillment the purposes and the plans of God to establish a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells forever, where sickness and sorrow and death are no more, where every tear is wiped away, where we exist in glorified bodies, no longer under the curse of sin, no longer in the presence of sin, 
but in righteousness forever. And this is how the scriptures encourage us. This is the hope that is constantly set before us to the extent that as Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonians, he comforts and encourages them as they're mourning the loss of people with an exhortation concerning the coming of the Lord. And he closes in 1 Thessalonians 4.14 saying this, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So he's expounding on the coming of the Lord. Jesus is coming back. And we'll talk a little bit more about this next week where he says, if you don't work, you don't eat. Right? They kind of lived under this too kind of like a realized expectation there. Right? But Paul is writing about the coming of the Lord. And he's saying, listen, this is how you encourage one another. You encourage one another with the words of Christ's return. That he's coming back for his people. And so the certain hope of Christ's return, the hope that is set before us, is a hope which is meant to encourage us to empower us, to embolden us, to equip us to do what God has called us to do in the midst of this time in between, a time which, again, is filled with hardships and struggles and difficulty. And I think one of the things that maybe, and I don't want to put this on you, let's put it on me. I think one of the things I struggle with so often is is making this translation between this future hope that I have set before me and and the way in which it practically equips and and enables me each and every day. Sometimes that's a hard bridge to make, right? Kind of like, you know, yeah, I know Jesus is coming back. I know that's in the future. And sometimes, you know, as post-mill people, way maybe in the the future. So what does that hope, how does that have anything to do with my day-to-day life? Right, the the right now of life. As I'm struggling uh, with, with sin in my own life, as I'm struggling with cancer, as I'm struggling with hardships, as I'm struggling with uh, marital difficulties, children difficulties. Like, how does that hope of, of Jesus coming back to set all things right, how does that help me right now? And that sometimes is a very difficult bridge to build. And I would say this, and yet that's what the scripture uses again and again and again and again to encourage the people of God. Is that we are marching towards something. We're not just on some indiscriminate path that's kind of wandering through the wilderness. We're marching towards the return of Christ. We're marching towards the final fulfillment of all things. The the finish line is set. It's there. And and Christ has set us on the path and we're walking towards it. And when we use the word hope, we we don't use the word hope in this kind of like ethereal, kind of like intangible, kind of like maybe it will, maybe it won't way. We use hope biblically in this in this way to speak of a certain reality that is set there. And everyone who fixes his hope on this purifies himself, John says, as he is pure. And so that means, like with the psalmist in Psalm 42 and with us in the midst of our daily lives, that the, not, not just that things are vying for our, atten- our, our satisfaction, but things are vying for our attention as well, right? To take our eyes off of that hope that's set before us, right? And to fix our eyes on other things, lesser things, distracting things, things that would pull us away from setting our eyes on that goal and, and setting our eyes on something else. And, and that's when things start to fall apart. Right? I mean, the writer of Hebrews, as he's writing to the church, what's his grand exhortation to them? What's his grand exhortation in Hebrews 12? Since we are so surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, what should we do? We should fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Fix our eyes on Christ. Since we're great, surrounded by so many people who walked this road before us, 
who had their eyes set on a future hope that was before them, a hope that, that they didn't have, that they didn't see the full fulfillment of, but a hope that was set before them. So since we are surrounded by so many people who did this before us, who walked this road with the hope set before them, you do the same thing. Fix your eyes on Christ and walk the path that he's called you to walk. So that means that in the midst of difficulty and hardship, we have something we can take our, something that will take our eyes off of that. It doesn't mean that we, we uh, kind of live in ignorance of, of the hardships in our life, but it means that we live in the realization that there's something greater and better and bigger than the hardships and difficulties in our lives, namely Christ and his return. And so during Advent, if I can be of any help and any assistance, uh, I would say that uh, I want us to fix our eyes on the hope that is set before us. To understand that longing, we, we are eagerly expecting the return of Christ. And to understand that in eagerly expecting the return of Christ, we have this sure and certain hope that is set before us. That encourage us is, encourages us and enables us and empowers us and emboldens us to live the life that God has called us to live, even in the midst of difficulty, hardships, and struggles. And so the same exhortation that the author of Hebrews gives to us, I give to us as well. Let us fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of faith, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your word. We praise you and thank you for Christ Jesus, who is our hope and salvation. We thank you, Lord, that like the psalmist, we can declare hope in God. For we will again worship you. Father, we hope in you and we pray, Father, that you would continue to produce hope in us, faith in us, trust in us, dependence in us as we look to you and know, Father, that you are faithful to keep your word. And to know, Father, that set before us is the return of Christ when all things shall be made right. So help us, Lord, to fix our eyes upon that hope, to live this life, this, this time in between, uh, in, in faith and in dependence upon Christ knowing that hardships and difficulties and adversaries will come, but none of them can undo, none of them can destroy, none of them can diminish the promise and the hope that is before us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I speak these words of Christ over you. The Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his counts upon you and give you peace. Let us go this week trusting and hoping in our God who is able to save you.